Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. During this extended celebration of Easter here at First Pres, we are, quote, living with the end in mind as we gather for Sunday worship. We are wading weekly into the strange waters of the book of Revelation with a mind towards what the book reveals about God's purposes for us and for God's creation. And the question that we return to weekly is this. Is there any gospel good news for us in the end? Or is our fate doomed and our doom fated? I noted last week that the first hearers of this strange book called Revelation were desperately searching for just a small morsel of good news as they lived out their days in the shadow of the violent and oppressive world-dominating superpower of the Roman Empire. The way of Jesus seemed ineffectual in blunting the sharp edge of Roman swords. The way of Jesus seemed utterly laughable in the face of Emperor Nero crucifying Christians by the hundreds. A Christian pastor whose name is, was John was dragged into solitary exile on a small island where perhaps for years he may have considered himself the last Christian remaining alive until the Spirit speaks to him and says, write this down, you're not alone. John needed to hear good news, that there were fellow believers alive who needed a message of hope to sustain them in the midst of their present darkness. And John's vision was given to him in order to renew the hope of the Christian who lived in a world that seemed oppressively bent toward destruction and upheaval. Far beyond the strange terror of some of the deep places of this book, there is an abiding rhythmic sense of hope about all that God is doing and will yet do. This, I believe, is a book filled with good news. And today, the good news finds us in Revelation chapter 5. You've heard it read, you have it in your order of worship, and I encourage you to follow along a bit as we work our way through this passage, this glimpse into the heart of heaven, into a throne room of sorts. Today we step into the center of all cosmic reality, depicted for us as an ordered Space with a throne at its center, surrounded by concentric circles of strange otherworldly beings. In Revelation chapter 4, John was invited up into this space, this throne room, where he glimpses this throne with somebody sitting on it, but whose form and shape is too glorious to make out. Besides that, it looked like something like polished gemstones encircled by a color-filled refraction of pure light. The throne is attended or guarded, perhaps, by four strange 
beasts that Revelation calls the four living creatures who symbolize for us all of the creative energy God poured into his creation back in Genesis chapter 1. There's one creature who has a face like a lion, symbolizing all of God's power and might. There's another with a face like an ox, symbolizing the labor and work it took to bring creation into being. A third with the face of a man, symbolizing the wisdom with which God made all things. And the final with a face like an eagle, whose lofty Light symbolize the far-reaching dominion of God. Around these four creatures is a ring of 24 smaller thrones. 24 is a rather strange number. It's 2 times 12. It's the number of hours in a day. It's the number of 12 tribes of Israel plus 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. It's the number of letters in the Greek alphabet. It's the number of books in the Hebrew Bible as it is written in Hebrew. It's the number of Old Testament prophets. It's the number of priests chosen to serve in the temple. It's the number of all the major and minor keys in Western tonal music. This is a number depicting something. Twenty-four thrones surround the Almighty, and each of them is occupied by someone called an elder, but in Greek I prefer the term presbyteros because it reminds me that Presbyterians will be in heaven sitting on thrones. Let the church say, amen. Who are these elders? Well, we don't ever get to know, but I think they are far more symbolic than literal, not actual people, but more likely figures that depict some other reality. Perhaps these Elders are the personification of time itself, with each one representing an hour of the day. Perhaps more likely they are the personification of the complete people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Whoever they are, they are clothed in unblemished robes. They wear gold crowns. They hold in their hands harps and golden bowls filled with the contents of the prayers of God's people. The throne room of John's vision is not quiet. It's not a space filled with silence. It is filled with chaotic shouts of praise, loud hymns of glory, elders falling on their faces before God, throwing crowns down before him as signs of fealty and devotion. And the symbolism here is abundantly clear. All creation is declaring God to be creator the one who is charting a course forward for his creation. This vision in Revelation's throne room is really just a symbolic retelling of Psalm 19, which says as much as it says, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. So if we're going to understand what's going on in today's reading from Revelation chapter 5, we have to be aware that John the Revelator has been invited into the behind-the-scenes operation of the cosmic center of the universe. And he is beholding a strange, personified vision of all creation doing what it has always done and is always doing, declaring God to be the Lord, Savior, Redeemer, and Ruler. 
And as one set of worship songs subsides, John sees something he did not see in the previous chapter, verse 1 of chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? Why is it sealed with seven seals? And what does it mean for it to be written on the back and the inside? There are many interpretations of what this scroll in God's hand might mean, but I think the most plausible is that it symbolizes the plans and purposes God has for creation. That is, what is written on the inside speaks of God's hidden plans, the secret operations and unrevealed purposes that God has in mind. But that the scroll is written on the outside as well speaks of the ways that God has already revealed to us what some of those purposes are. We're reminded that God has already shown us what God requires. We're reminded in Micah 6, verse 8, he has shown thee, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. John Calvin recognized that God has revealed to us in the law part of his will and purpose for the world, but that God has also hidden part of his will from us, something that God call, uh, Calvin calls God's wonderful method of governing the universe. The entirety of the book of Job, for example, is really a poetic collision of a human person with the hidden will of God, a book in which little is actually revealed, except that we as humans lack the capacity to grasp such knowledge. Okay, so there's this scroll, and it's in God's hands, and it has seven seals. In the Roman world, last wills and testaments were sealed with, you guessed it, seven wax imprinted seals to guarantee they were not tampered with and were considered legally sound. So is it possible that John's vision is actually of God's last will and testament for his created world sealed away from human perception and knowledge? Would the contents of this scroll explain why our lives are so frequently interrupted by disappointment and sorrow and bitterness? Would the scroll tell us why bad things happen to good people or why evil always seems to have the upper hand? Would this scroll explain to us how God is actually in control so that we can stop wondering if it's true? Is the knowledge in this scroll, the knowledge of good and evil that our parents in the Garden of Eden craved, wouldn't it be helpful for us to know what is inside this scroll? Verses 2 and 3. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No matter what is inside that scroll, we have no way to open it. The symbol of the locked scroll speaks to the hiddenness of God's plans, but it also testifies to a distinction between God as creator and we as God's creatures. 
Notice that in verse 2, the list of creatures unable to open the scroll includes all objects of divine creation. No one in heaven, no one on earth, and nothing under the earth. No one is capable, no creature is capable of discerning the hidden will of God or explaining to us the secret mysteries of the universe. As creatures, we do not have access to the inner will and purposes of the Creator any more than a bull on a potter's wheel has access to the inner mind or purposes of the potter. All the bull knows is the shaping power of the potter's hands and her tools. And so too, all we know is what God reveals to us by how God acts towards us. But church, what happens when we take stock in our life, we take stock in the world, and we find that the circumstances there feel frightening and overwhelming? What happens when our experience in our life feels empty of God's purposes? What happens when we find ourselves in those seasons that many of us have found ourselves in where we are crying aloud to hear God's voice and all we can perceive is this thick silence of God? In the face of persecution and terror, the church in the first century may have rightly wondered what God's plans are for the world. The sealed scroll in the hand of the Almighty may have been a very apt analogy for the way that the future feels locked up and uncertain. And so for us here, 2,000 years later, we who endure the onslaught of tragedy and loss of disease and terror, we too may rightly wonder, what are God's purposes for this world? We pray, but sometimes we feel the best Metaphor for what we receive from God is a locked scroll we can't read. Well, in verse 4, John the Revelator acts for all of us, I believe, as he begins to weep bitterly. Verse 4, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. We, Church, we long to believe that God has a plan for this world, that God is providentially ordering all things in ways that will lead to redemption and restoration, but far too often we end up colliding with a bitter present reality, whether it is of death or suffering, and we turn to the Lord and we find a sealed scroll, and perhaps we, like John, weep bitterly because we can't see what lies ahead. So it is good for us for a moment to pause with John and sit and weep in that silence. We can weep in our weary wondering of how long it will be before we can recover hope. We can weep as we mourn all that we have lost and all that is yet unclear, but we cannot remain here weeping. The gospel good news of this text is not that God's will is hidden from us, but rather that there is someone who can open the scroll and read it to us. The gospel good news is found in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder tells John that there is a great lion, a conquering lion, a lion who stands at the head of all Israel's tribes, that this lion has prevailed, the elder says. But what the elder tells John and what John sees are two different things. Verse 6, 
Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, not a lion, but a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This lion that John was told about turns out not as he expected. It's not a lion at all, in fact. It's a lamb. And the word used here in Greek is for the smallest of the sheep, one standing as if it had been slaughtered, a lamb who appears to have been killed but who is yet alive. The lamb is a vision, a symbol of meekness and humility, not of might and power. And yet, this lamb is the one who has conquered and who is worthy to disclose the purposes of God to the earth. John does not disclose the lamb's name, but only that it was standing as if it had been slaughtered, but is no longer dead. It is very much alive. And the church can fill in the blank. This is Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified, buried, and the one who was raised to new life. Christ is risen. risen The one who conquered did so not through military warfare, economic influence, governmental power. The one who conquered did so by his radical act of self-sacrifice. By his blood. He ransomed a worldwide tribe of humanity. Through him giving himself up to death, he redeemed us all. And as such, he is the only one worthy to take this scroll, break its seals, and read its contents to all creation. And so we read verse 7. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And in what follows this moment... We hear the hymns and songs of ceaseless praise poured out to the Lamb. In verse 9, the elders and the creatures are the first to sing, declaring the Lamb worthy because he was slaughtered. And through his death, he redeemed a new people from all peoples of earth, fashioning them into a kingdom of priests. In verse 12, we hear the thunderous sevenfold acclamation of the innumerable angelic choir singing in full voice, worthy as the Lamb, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And finally, in verse 13, we hear the song carried by the voices of every single created being in every single creaturely location who sings or screeches or croaks or calls or chirps or grunts or whispers to God and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever. Heaven understands the assignment, church. When the Lamb takes the scroll, it's time to praise. It's time to sing new songs. It's time to reorient every voice and song to this new center of the universe. In Christ, God has shifted the fundamental axis of the universe and made all creation orbit this Lamb who alone makes God known to us. Indeed, in this passage, we see the unfolding, cascading, overlapping songs of praise going forth by all creation. Heaven breaks out in joy, for God is made known to us through Jesus, the one who has conquered by giving himself up for death. 
And in response to the creation's praise, all the energies of the cosmos symbolized by the four living creatures shout amen, and the representatives of God's people fall to their faces in worship. This text is filled with good news, shrouded though it might be in strange vision and symbols. The good news for the church today is the same good news that it was for the church who first heard this vision. There is a scroll. That is to say, God does indeed have a plan and purpose for this world and for we who inhabit it. God did not create all things only to then abdicate the throne and wander over to another universe, leaving us to spin ourselves out of existence. And the good news on top of that good news is that there is somebody who is able to open that scroll, somebody who is able to declare to us what those purposes of God are, somebody who is able to handle the mysteries of the hidden will of God, able to translate them, able to accommodate them to our understanding. He is Jesus Christ, the one who stands in heaven looking as if he had been slain, bearing the marks of our attempt to silence him. He alone can announce how the story of God shall unfold. And in him and by him, we hear the best news of all. The purposes of God for all things is not death and suffering, but life and wholeness. The kind of life that unfolds itself out into eternity. In Jesus, we learn that the end of mortal existence is not our final end. The one who conquered death tells us that all things, including this busted-up world we've wrecked, will be renewed, healed, and set upon a new foundation of justice and peace. The question for the church today is the same question for the church who heard this vision first. Will we accept what this lamb slain by the powers that be, tells us about God and God's purposes for this world, or will we refuse it? Will we prefer the Lamb's story of self-sacrifice, of giving up our very lives for the sake of one another, or will we prefer the story of the visible world in which only economic might prevails? Will we prefer the Lamb's story of how the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of God or how the meek will inherit the earth? Or will we prefer the story of this world in which sacrifice is viewed as weakness and meekness is viewed as pitiful? The question for us is not, the question for us is whether or not we can accept that the true conquering force in God's kingdom is not what we would otherwise recognize as power or strength or might. In the heavenly courts, it's not a lion at all, but a small slain lamb that is declared worthy to receive power and blessing and honor. The invitation to the church today is the same invitation that it was for the church who first heard this vision. Will we look to Jesus alone to narrate for us the will of God? Will we place our trust not in kings or financial markets or presidents or military actions, the, the lions of our day, but will we place our trust repeatedly, daily, in the humble, quiet, self-sacrificial love of the Lamb, Jesus Christ? 
And will we then therefore take up our place in the cosmic choir, learning the songs of heaven as we ascribe all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to the Lord Christ? Church, Christ is risen. Christ is risen.